Father, we are so blessed to be called the children of God, to know that one day we will spend eternity in the presence of the Father, enjoying all the good things that you have pre prepared for your people. We look forward to it with an anticipation that uh, causes us often to, to look at this world as, as simply a, trans a transition stage, which certainly it is. But it is a place in which you've put us to serve. And Lord, I pray that we will recognize the service to which you've called us and that we will daily prepare our hearts that we might be better able to serve in the manner in which you have called us. And we trust, Lord, that our time here this morning will be part of that preparation as we study the Word of God, as we allow you to penetrate our hearts and to reveal those areas which need uh, change, to grant to us greater understanding of your character and your nature and your purpose. Oh, Father, we trust you to, to be here this morning to minister to each of us. And Lord, for those members of our class who are, are not here this morning, uh, several are over at Trinity Alliance ministering uh, for the Gideons there, we trust your special blessing upon them, especially for Gorman as he will speak concerning the work of the Gideons. And then, Father, throughout our Sunday school this morning, we trust you to, to be present in every class to do your good work. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, the 32nd chapter of... Exodus, 32nd chapter of Exodus. As I have mentioned on previous occasions, this is one of the most profound and interesting chapters in the entire book of Exodus. So many things happen here which reveal something of the character of human beings and then of the nature of God and particularly of the role of the intercessor, which is what Moses does on at least two major occasions as we note them in this particular chapter. So I'd like to begin reading with verse 15 and read down through verse 20. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets which were written on both sides. They were written on one side and the other. And the tablets were God's work, and the writing was God's writing engraved upon the tablets. Now when Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a sound of war in the camp. But he said, Moses replied, it is not the sound, it is not the sound of the cry of triumph, nor is it the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. And it came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. And Moses' anger burned, and he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf which he had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it over the surface of the water and made the sons of Israel drink it. Moses has been 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain. And as he came to the end of that period and God had finished the tablets, God said to Moses, you need to go down from the mountain because your, your people are rebelling against me. Your people have made a golden calf and your people are worshiping a false god. And so Moses has been warned and, and Moses picks up the tablets as we read here to begin his journey down the mountain. Now verse 16 of this passage emphasizes 
the fact, and this is a very important fact, that the stone tablets were the work of God alone. Not just the pronouncements, not just the spoken word, but the engraved words, and the engraving of the words, and the cutting out of the tablet. All of this was the work of God. And you'll notice how it emphasizes that the tablets were written on two sides, and then it goes on to say again, on the one side and on the other, <laughs> just in case we didn't get it the first time. Can you imagine being up there? Can you imagine putting yourself in the place of Moses? And you're going to pick up the very handiwork of God. The stone tablets that God himself has cut out from the mountain and which God has written the Decalogue. I think it was with great reverence that Moses picked up these two tablets and to carry them gingerly down the mountain. They were unique. Think about it. Can you think of any other time in history when God made a specific handiwork like this, all his own work, and handed it to someone? These stone tablets were unique. Nothing like them before, nothing like them since has been made by God. I think he very, very carefully cradled them in his arms as he began to descend the mountain, watching his step as he took every curve in the pathway down the mountain and stepped over every stone to be sure he didn't stumble and break the tablets. He came down the mountain to where Joshua was waiting. Now Joshua was waiting, we're not told, but maybe halfway or so down the mountain, Joshua was waiting. And as he came within sight, Joshua, of course, was delighted. Joshua had been waiting up there as long as Moses had been up the mountain. And, and, and Joshua, here, here Moses finally was coming. And, and when Moses came close to him and he saw the tablets, I'm sure that, Mo, uh, that Joshua was awestruck when Moses explained that this is the handiwork of God. God himself carved these out. God himself wrote these words. And probably Joshua reached out with his hand to touch the tablets. It was an awesome thing to him as they had their encounter. And, and certainly, of course, Moses seemed to be a different man. He'd been up on that mountain for a long time in the presence of God. So they continued down the mountain two by two, side by side, down this path towards the base of the mountain. And I think Moses shared with Joshua what had been happening on the mountain and specifically that God had commanded him to go down the mountain because Israel's in rebellion, corrupting themselves. You'll notice as we read in the passage that before they ever reached the base of the mountain, the sound from of the events in the camp came up the mountain into their ears. And Joshua interpreted it as a sound of war. There must be warring going on down there. But Moses, in this little, which it's, it's actually written as a poem here, says, it is not the sound of triumph, nor is it the cry of defeat. It's the sound of singing, I hear. God had clearly warned Moses up on the mountain. He'd said, Moses, you need to go down because your people are doing an evil thing. And so Moses knew there was a problem. And so Moses went down with that anticipation. But when he actually came into sight of what was happening, his anger flared. When he saw these people worshiping and reveling around a golden calf, 
Here he had been in the presence of the Almighty God, the maker of heaven and earth. He was infused with God's being. And as he looked at this, I mean, it, just, it was just a natural response on his part. His anger flared. Certainly to some extent it was the wrath of God within him that flared up as he saw this folly. Now just hours before, he had been interceding before God on behalf of Israel. And, and, and we read that last week back up in, in verse, verses 9, 10, 11. Verse 11 specifically where it says, Moses entreated, The Lord is God, and said, O Lord, why dost thine anger burn against thy people, whom thou hast brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why does your wrath burn up and now what's happening? Within Moses itself, himself, it's, his anger flares, I think, without his control. This anger was an example of righteous indignation. You know, we... We talk about that sometimes, tritely almost. I'm not mad, I'm righteously indignant, you know. Sometimes it's more of an excuse than anything else. There is a such a thing, however, as righteous indignation, and that is when our anger rises because we're jealous for the, for the reputation of our God. And so it was, I believe, with Moses here. He reacts so violently that he does the unspeakable. He takes these very stone tablets that he has gingerly carried down the mountain, protecting that he didn't fall at any point and crack these tablets, and now he hurls them down the mountain. Can you imagine that? You know? uh, what, a, what a transition has occurred within this man that he would dare to throw the handiwork of God to the base of the mountain. There's a great deal of symbolism here, and I think it's important symbolism. It isn't just a matter of a man getting ma mad and breaking things because that's not terribly unusual. I don't know, maybe some of you have actually been mad enough to break something, poke your fist through the wall or whatever. But this is something which God is using. The shattering of these tablets which contained the Decalogue, the pronouncements of God, I think symbolized the fact that the people of Israel were brazenly breaking the very laws that they had promised they would obey. Now, they hadn't actually received them, but they had received the word of God, and they had proclaimed that they would obey whatever God's word was, and now they are busily violating that promise. And here is the, 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 the very basic words of the covenant that was made between Israel and Yahweh, and they have broken that, and so the shattering of the tablets symbolizes their brazen, brazen breaking of the covenant. And then there is a passage that I remembered in James that I think is fitting here. In James chapter 2, we read in verse 10, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point... He has been guilty of all. Guilty of all. The Decalogue is such a, 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 an interweaving of God's truth and of the nature and character of God. The, the Decalogue is not ten separate distinct things, but an interweaving of truth so that the breaking or violating of one point is a breaking and violating of it all. You're violating the nature of the covenant between God and man. 
It's like Adam and Eve in the garden. They just did one thing. They took of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil and ate of it in violation of God's word. That was the only thing they did. And yet, as a result of it, the fall came upon man. It's as if they had broken any and all possible commands that God could have given the human race. And so the shattering of the Decalogue as it hit the bottom of the mountain and who knows how many pieces it went into symbolized the fact that they were breaking the total law of God as they worshiped this golden calf in great revelry. What happens next is really truly amazing. It's all, you know, it's just summarized in that, in that one little verse there. For it says in, in verse 20 that he took the calf which they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it over the surface of the water and made the sons of Israel drink it. That sounds, you know, it's pretty much of a, a, a succinct statement. But can we picture what's happening? I mean, Moses is still part way up the mountain when he sees this thing happening. And he hurls these tablets down there. And he comes storming down off that mountain right into the midst of the Israelite camp. Here is Moses. With what authority does he move into the middle of the camp, into the midst of thousands of revelers to break up their party, to topple the golden calf into the fire that was burning where sacrifices had been made, and then to pulverize that calf with stones probably as he, with great anger, he hurled them at this calf until he had pounded it to smithereens. How could he do that? How could one man do that? I mean, Moses is not Samson. How, how could this 80-year-old this man break up this party with tens of thousands of revelers who are probably in many cases on the verge, verge of being almost insane with what they're doing? And not a, not a man lays a hand on Moses. How could he do that? I think he did it in the same power with which Jesus as he went into the temple there, he drove out the money changers and the sacrifice sellers and ne no, never a man laid a hand on him either because he went in there with the awesome power of God and the fear of the Lord fell on them all. I mean, here was the man through whom God had worked these great miracles in Egypt. How dare they lay a finger on him? And I think instead they cowered and stood back with great fear as Moses with great rage toppled, as, um, probably almost superhuman strength, as he toppled the calf and began to pound it into little pieces. And I think he was yelling the whole time, accusing them of their sin. There's an interesting verse. We'll look at this passage twice. But uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 21, when Moses is later summarizing the events which had happened, he says, And I took your sinful thing, the calf which you had made, and burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until it was as fine as dust. And I threw its dust into the brook that came down from the mountain. That possibly will, would tell us what time of the year it was even because you can be pretty sure that there is no brook running off Mount Sinai most of the time. It's a very desert area. So it probably was in the midst of winter. And what little rain comes to the area had come, and there was a small brook running down off of Mount Sinai. And into that water he tosses the ground up 
calf. Now remember, this calf was gold. As I mentioned to you before, and as many of you already know, gold has a specific gravity of 19, meaning it is 19 times more dense than water. So he ground this thing up here. You can't picture the gold floating on the surface and them drinking gold water here. <laughs> as he threw the calf into the water, the gold would sink to the bottom. And even if the core of the, of the calf had been made out of wood, as some speculate, and thus he burned that and ground it to powder and threw it in, the flowing water would have carried it away. So the importance is not here that they actually drank a part of the calf. The importance here is symbolic. The drinking of this water into which he had poured this sinful thing, or literally in Hebrew the word is this sin, there in Deuteronomy 9, the drinking of the water was symbolic of the fact that the sin was rooted in the very core of their being. Just as they would drink the water, it would flow to the very depths of their being. So this sin was rooted there. And so what he is saying, this is not simply an unpremeditated failing, just an accidental sin along the way. It's symbolic of the fact that this is an expression of their basic unbelief their basic unbelief. Let me just read to you a single verse <clears throat> in the book of Jude. You don't need to try to turn there. In Jude verse 5, we read this. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe who did not believe. The basic root of their sin is unbelief. Now and later, not many will die at this moment because their cup of iniquity is not yet full. They will be in the process of filling it up. And there will be that day which will come when God will say, you all will die from 20 years old and up. You will all die in this wilderness and you will not see the land. Your cup of iniquity is full. And God would destroy that generation. But not yet. Not yet. But again, it's unbelief. And really, that's the root cause of almost any sin you can think of. I mean, why do we do some of the things we do sometimes? I think it's not that we don't believe in God in, in the generic term. It's that we don't believe it's important. We don't believe it's significant. We, we don't believe that God really means everything that he says. Moses will not be, of course, free from sin. But Moses is quite clear as to what sin is. And he deals with it in a very, very vehement way here. To me, this is one of the high dramas of Scripture. If you could just portray this. I mean, Hollywood, I'm sure, could never do justice to, to this event. But if we can just put ourselves in Moses' place and, and, and understand what Moses understood that day. Well, let's read on in verse 21 of Exodus 32 and see what happens next. Then Moses said to Aaron, Why did this, What did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself, that they are prone to evil. For they said to me, Make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, 
we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> as foolish as that sounds, that's all way all of our excuses ever sound before the ears of God. Just as foolish. Moses had left Aaron in charge. Aaron was his elder brother. <laughs> Notice Aaron's response to him. He says, but my Lord, <laughs> you know, referring to his younger brother. Why did, why did Moses do this? Why did Moses leave Aaron in charge? Well, Aaron had been his spokesman. God had said to him at the burning bush, I will give you Aaron for your mouthpiece. Aaron will go with you, two by two. And remember, Aaron met him in the wilderness, and together they went to Egypt. Moses fully believed that Aaron was totally committed to what God was doing. And I believe Moses left Aaron in charge believing that Aaron would do the right thing, believing that he would head off any rebellion, that he would be responsible before God to do what Moses would have done had Moses been there. I don't really think Moses had any fear or trepidation about leaving Aaron behind in charge. His own brother, Moses felt betrayed. My own brother, who had served with me before Pharaoh, and who had spoken the words of God's, of God's pronouncements, who had seen the mighty judgments that God brought upon Egypt. It was very hard for Moses to understand how his brother who had witnessed what God had done, could be so easily carried away by the rabble-rousers. Not only was he carried away by them to the point that he didn't try to dissuade them, he didn't say to them, now wait a minute, folks, you're on the wrong path. Instead, what does he do? He actually manufactures the image that they will worship and says that this is Yahweh who led us out of the land of Egypt. I think it's important for us to realize that this is no minor defection, and Moses does not view it as a minor defection at all. I think he is very personally wounded here. Think about it. Who did Moses have to stand with him to lead this recalcitrant people? He had his brother, and he had Joshua, but Joshua's young. Joshua hasn't been through everything that Moses and Aaron have been through together. So when, when, when Aaron defects, Moses feels exposed. I mean, Moses feels alone. We, we have to constantly remind ourselves, I think, that Moses was not a superhuman person. He was a normal human being. And I don't know about you, but trying to be alone in leading spiritual warfare has got to be a hard, hard thing, even for Moses. And so Moses t is hurt by this very, very deeply. And Aaron recognizes this, and Aaron tries to excuse himself. And he gives, us, he gives three very lame excuses. First of all, he tries to pass the buck by pointing out the fact that Moses, of course, knew right well that these people are prone to sin. Oh, that's new, Aaron. Yeah, all right. Yeah. Tell me something else new. <laughs> These people are prone to sin as if, you know, I mean, there wasn't anything I could do about it. Obviously, they're going to sin. But, but then he goes on, and, and this is even more hurtful in some ways to Moses, because he first he says, well, 
they, he implies that they forced me to make this image. There wasn't anything else I could do. They forced me to do it. And then he even hints in what he says there that maybe Moses was partly responsible because he took so long in coming down from the mountain. You know, if you'd have been here sooner, this wouldn't have happened. So really, it's your fault too. That helps. That makes Moses feel a lot better. And then thirdly, of course, he makes the most ridiculous claim of all. They just threw the earrings into the fire and out popped this calf. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 18. And I fell down before the Lord, as at the first, forty days and nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all your sin, which you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord, to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure with which the Lord was wrathful against you in order to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me at time, that time also. And the Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him. So I prayed for Aaron at the same time. Then the verse we read before about his destruction of the golden calf. We have here a passage which informs us of something that we're not told in Exodus. And that is that Moses went on a 40-day fast praying for Israel as a result of this sin. For 40 days and 40 nights, Moses pled with God on behalf of his people after he had destroyed the golden calf. And he specifically prayed that God would preserve Aaron, his brother. He could have said, Lord, destroy Aaron. He's betrayed you and he's betrayed me, but he does not do that. He loves his brother and he knows that although his brother has failed, his brother needed God's grace. I think although Moses had been up on the mountain and had been infused with the glory and the presence of God, he well knew that he was a sinful man. In fact, being in the presence of God would have highlighted that probably all the more. He knew that he was not a worthy man either, and so all that he did, he did with the indignation of God. It was God's wrath, I believe, that poured through him because Moses knew that he was not a worthy man. And but for the grace of God, as we so often heard, there would go I. So he pleaded and interceded with God for Israel. Forty days and forty nights. You have to kind of plug that in to the events that, that come next and understand the time frame. And understand the fact that in, in spite of the fact that he was interceding for these people and praying that God's wrath might be revealed, there were those that God's wrath might be withheld. There were those who were persisting in this sin. And that's, of course, the hard thing really to understand. And it gives us some reason to know why God allows Moses to do uh, something which seems very, very serious to us in the slaying of 3,000 of Israel. Let's read verse 25 to 29 of Deuteronomy 32. Now when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. 
And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother, every man his friend, every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, Dedicate yourselves to the Lord, for every man has been against his son, against his brother, in order that he may bestow a blessing upon you today. Many, many people have a real hard time with the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, the wrath of God is often revealed in a very um, violent way, we might say. I've never sat down to total it up. I don't know if anybody has to find out how many the total would be of people killed because God ordered it or God said a, sent in a, a, a disease or fiery serpents or whatever was, you know, what the total might be. But certainly it's in the hundreds of thousands, who knows, maybe even in the millions that perished. But you know, one of the things that that reveals to us is how God really views sin, how heinous it really is how serious it is, how destructive it is. And that's something we really need to be able to catch a hold of today in our society because in our society, sin is, is not only not called sin, it's considered normal life. I mean, all the way from the highest levels uh, of, of our country to the lowest levels of our country, we find sin of all sorts is not only accepted, it's encouraged to the point that they're even trying to legislate some of it to make it acceptable and even legitimate in all its forms. But God has not changed. And I think that's one of the things we need to know. Some people like to think of God of the Old Testament as being different from the God of the New Testament. God's immutable. He can't change. As He was in the Old Testament, so He is today. God loved Israel every bit as much as Jesus ever preached love. And the love that Jesus has for the church is the same love that God had for Israel. Because Israel was the church of the Old Testament. And, and, and so we have to, to understand that, that God will deal with the church just as He dealt with Israel in many ways. It's more subtle, it seems. There are some interesting passages in the New Testament, you know, particularly like talking about the communion. It says some have partaken unworthily and therefore have gone asleep, which means died. Whatever all that means and however it all works out. But we have to understand the very importance, the great importance God places on obedience, faithfulness. And can, can we imagine this? Moses has come down for the mountain in great anger. He has pulverized the calf. He's made them drink the water to symbolize their sin. He has, for 40 days and 40 nights, pled with God without eating or drinking, and there were still people in Israel who were flagrantly participating in this sin and ignoring all the zeal of the Lord that Moses had demonstrated. What that tells us is that no matter how much we may demonstrate the might and the power of God or preach the gospel, there are those who will not listen and will not be changed. There are those, in fact, who would fight against God, dare even to lift their hand against God if they could. 
they're infused with the thinking of Satan, who would be, as the Old Testament tells us, as the Almighty. I just have a hard time understanding how puny people could ever think that they could resist Almighty God. It's, it's almost like trying to spit into a forest fire. Expect you're going to put it out, you know. The scripture says they were out of control, out of control. The verb here implies a casting off of all moral restraint, all inhibitions. It seems to imply that they were practicing a religious prostitution and reveling in it and that they would not cease. And God, through Moses, again blames Aaron for allowing this condition to develop. A condition which could allow Israel to become the laughing stock of her enemies. And I think when Moses said that, he was referring back to verse 12 in that chapter where he had, in his prayer before God, he had said, Why should the Egyptians speak, saying with evil intent, he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and destroy them from the face of the earth? And this is one of the bases from which Moses pled with God not to destroy Israel because Egypt will laugh had a God who could work great miracles but can't even preserve his own people and therefore he has to wipe them out. So I think that's what he's referring to. He said, he's saying that because they've done this and because God's wrath is going to be poured out, Israel's going to be that laughing stock that had implored him not to allow them to become. To halt this sin infection, Moses knew he had to act quickly and he had to act decisively. So he went to the main entrance of the camp and he raised a standard for the Lord. Just as a medieval battle captain would go and plant the flag of, of the nation or the people and call those to come to him who will fight on behalf of this standard, so Moses raises the standard of the Lord and says, Who will come and stand beside me this day on behalf of Yahweh? Who will commit themselves to serve God unreservedly, reservedly, even to the point of what may, God may ask of you to do? Sons of Levi came and stood at Moses' side. How come? Nobody else is mentioned at all. Sons of Levi only. How come? Why the sons of Levi? Well, what tribe was Moses? Levi. So I think partly they came to him because he was of their tribe. He was their man. He had become the leader of the nation and, 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 and hence the leader of the tribe, even though he was probably not the actual patriarchal leader of the tribe. And so they came, but I think they also came because God put the desire to do that because he was preparing them to be the priestly tribe. And they were going to have to do some pretty hard things. Later on, we'll read about Eliezer, who would become the great priest, who as priest would actually kill people to stop sin in Israel. And so Levi came and gathered around their champion, Moses, and made the commitment. Why did no one from any other tribe come? At least, at least there's no record. We might assume some others did, but it doesn't say they did. I think it could partly be at least that there still were tribal distinctions. And as some watched that only Levi was gathering, the others held back, afraid that they might become viewed as traitorous to their own tribe if they went. And I think some of them were not certain what Moses was doing here. <laughs> What's this going to mean, Moses? Why are you doing this? What are you going to do? So the others held back, it would seem, from joining the standard. I don't think that means that no other man in Israel loved God or believed God. Well, through Moses, 
God instructed the Levites, every man to strap his sword on his side, on his thigh. Now that's pretty foreboding. What do we need a sword for? Every man to strap his sword on his side. Then he says, fan out through the camp. Go from gate to gate. And as you go, it sounds pretty generic there as you read it, that every man is to kill his brother and kill his neighbor as, as he goes through the camp here. But I think what we're really seeing here is they were ordered to go and to deal with those who were still persisting in their rebellion and their morality and in the heinous sin. Those who had rejected repentance, those who rejected the 40 days and nights of Moses' intercession and continued in their sin, they were to be sought out and slain. I think the leaders who were still in that state, who had actually been the ones to convince Aaron to make the statue in the first place, were probably amongst the first to be cut down. I think they went out with great reluctance. I think the words fell hard on their ears. It's hard to go out amongst your own people and start killing people. But they had the fire of God in their hearts. They had the words of Moses ringing in their ears. And so they went out to carry out the Maccabert task. Ultimately, as the passage tells us, 3,000 would pay the ultimate price for their great sin. What this did to, was to drive home to Israel that God meant business. God doesn't play around. God is not that, that great old grandfather in heaven, all you know, gray, bewhiskered person in the rocking chair, you know, going back and forth and looking down saying, well, you know, kind of the frank and earnest view of, uh, of God, you know. No, no. God has a nature that cannot change. God is absolutely holy. God is absolutely sinless. God cannot look on sin in the sense of allowing it to persist. Tina? How would you say this relates to our time, relating it also back to your Jude scripture? These people at one time believed, and now God has removed them. Well, we don't know that they have personally believed. My own opinion is, because I come from a particular interpretation of Scripture, is that these who are destroyed are probably those who had been carried along and had come along, but had never arrived at a position of personally believing in their own relationship with Yahweh. Sure, I think in, a, in, in not such a blatant way, but I think that uh, uh, there are those who are carried along in the church and become a part of it without ever becoming believers who God will remove in his time by whatever means he chooses. There are those, and, and there's, a little pas there's a passage in the later part of this chapter that, you know, there are certain things in Scripture where you live in a dynamic tension, and we have to view it that way. We, we can't resolve every issue in, in Scripture so that it just fits nicely into a little set pattern. I mean, there are those who try to do that. But the scripture speaks of things in such a way that there's kind of a tension that is created here. And we have to try to live within that tension. Because later on, he talk, Moses talks about, and we won't get to it today, but Moses asks God, if you can't forgive Israel, blot my name out of the book. What does he mean by that, you know? Does he mean to become unsaved and go to hell for Israel? I don't believe that's possible. But uh, whatever, you know, was meant, we'll be talking about that uh, next week in, in specific. 
But I don't think these are people who were believers who then chased after something else and so God wiped them out. And it's possible for believers to sin. And I think it's possible for a true believer sometimes to get carried off into some kind of heresy. And that usually will happen because that person does not know the Word of God very well and gets carried away. But I think in those cases, God will try to redeem them and bring them back out rather than to destroy them. But who knows for sure. Dr. Walmart? Too, uh, on a cosmic level, uh, the book of Revelation is a reminder to us that uh, God's wrath will have its ultimate uh, outpouring on the human race. Now, there's some significant progressive revelation, I think, that's being considered in the process, but uh, the apocalypse always <laughs> yeah. emerges at the end to remind us that, uh, as one author put it, the angry lamb is still ready to pour out his wrath on the, on the impenitent. Some of you, I think, are familiar with the life of Michelangelo. And you know that Michelangelo painted the great Sistine Chapel ceiling. But he also painted the, the great wall behind the altar. And on that wall, he, he paints Christ returning. And he paints a very angry Christ coming back. That is, of course, partly because he had been under the influence of a, um, of a preacher, a Dominican preacher, by, by the name of Savonarola who preached an apocalyptic version of, uh, of God's action. And he had preached that, great, that God's great hand of wrath was going to fall on Italy and on Rome because of the sin that had occurred. And uh, Michelangelo had been profoundly impacted by him. And that seems to be expressed in his uh, painting on the Sistine, the wall behind the altar there in the Sistine Chapel. But I think as Dr. Walmark has clearly stated to us that if you read the book of Revelation, I mean, some awful things happen there. You know, a third of this is wiped out and a third of that is wiped out. It doesn't sound very friendly, you know. I mean, it's not some grandfatherly God up there just saying, now, 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 I know you couldn't help it. Uh, but, I mean, you know, all hell breaks loose, it seems. And there's vast destruction. I, I was listening to one preacher once, and I, you know, I don't know whether he was right or not, but he was adding all this up, you know. <laughs> The quarter of this and a third of that, and by the time it was all over, there was about 20% of the human race left, you know. And, well, I mean, we're approaching six billion of us. By the turn of the century, there'll be six billion human beings walking around on this planet. That's a lot of people to die. So, yeah, I think so. Gordon. Actually, the, uh, the sentence of death was really upon all men because of their sin. And so these people were dying a different death than they eventually would. It doesn't look as bad when you think of it in that life. Right. That we all die sometime anyway. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think these things have to be kept in mind as we study the Old Testament so we don't, as one professor, when I was attending college umpteen years ago, uh, one professor who was definitely not a believer uh, referred to the God of the Old Testament as psychotic, you know, because he's out there, zap, 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 you know. As if he did, you know, he just, just he couldn't take these challenges to his character, which is, of course, a foolish way to look at it. But, uh, I mean, God is pretty secure in his position <laughs> as Lord of the universe. And, and there isn't going to be any close elections or even any elections. <laughs> the only election is divine election. It's he's doing the electing. And thank God if we are, we are the elect, that we are the elect. And I trust that's true of 
every one of us in the room here. Well, we'd, uh, I'll pick this up next week. We'll start here again and look at this and then go on to that really interesting passage where Moses is, offers himself, tries to offer himself to God in behalf of his people. I mean, that's ultimate intercession. Not just to pray a prayer, but to offer your very being on behalf of your people.